You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and, and during this summer, we've been all kinds of different places in, in the scriptures. Uh, we've been going through a series called Back to the Basics. We, we want to get every disciple equipped in the fundamentals of following Jesus. The, the goal is that every follower of Jesus who calls Oak Hill home, every one of you who is growing in your dependence on and devotion to Jesus would go back and examine the fundamentals of the Christian walk in your own experience. A lot of our uh, teenagers, a couple of our teenagers have been going to camps uh, this, this summer, football camp. I think I saw Andre went to football camp, right? And uh, band camp, I saw John Cheek. The younger uh, went to band camp this year. And, uh, and so what are you doing at those camps, right? Like preseason camp is all about making sure that everyone on the team understands the plays, understands the steps, understands the progression of things, the basics of things, the fundamentals. And that's what we've been doing here, except instead of trying to keep in step with each other on a football field, we, we've been under the, the direction of our coach, Jesus Christ our director, Jesus, and we're keeping in step with one another as a church. And so we've been pointing out that that being a disciple is not some private me and Jesus thing, just like a football team, just like a band. It's an us thing. It's a team thing. It's personal, but it's definitely not private. It affects the relationships in our families and, and in our churches and, and in our workplace. And today we're going to look at how the gospel of Jesus Christ, following Jesus, affects our relationships within the community in which we live. Because I, I don't know if you've noticed, but if you really get after following Jesus, if your life starts to look like His and you truly depend on Him for everything, and you give up everything to follow Jesus, just like Jesus calls all his disciples to do, you are going to stick out in this world. Anybody notice that? Like, anybody notice that, that what Jesus calls us to is kind of different than what is common in our world today? And so let me ask you this. How, how many of you like to stick out in a crowd? I mean, I don't, I don't mean like the life of the party kind of person who, who you know, like the, everybody like is just becomes the center of attention. Like, that's fine. That's good. That's, you know, we need those people in life because otherwise parties are boring. But I'm, I'm talking about sticking out like you're the person who doesn't fit in. I remember one time that this happened to Katie and I. Uh, Katie has these friends from when she grew up who are, um, they run in sort of posh circles, uh, if you know what I mean. Um, they, they are super sweet people, but, but they're just a bit more like swanky than we are. And, and so early on in our marriage, we were invited over to their apartment for a housewarming party, right? And, and so we show up, and of course we are not fashionably late, because if you know me, right, like I, I'm not going to be late to anything. And so the idea of fashionably late is like, why is that fashionable? And so they opened the door and they said, 
we knew you'd be the first people here. Okay, so that was tip number one. And then as people start showing up, we, we notice that we're the only people wearing what we would consider normal clothes. Um, and, and so like, like we're dressed like we normally do. Like I'm probably dressed like this and Katie's just wearing whatever. Uh, I'm sure she looked lovely, but um, Katie was the only one not wearing a black dress. And I was the only man not wearing a tie. And, uh, and so our friends, our, our hosts, they didn't treat us any differently. They are so kind. We love them dearly. But let's just say uh, we were clearly not fitting in with that culture. Do you ever feel like that? We clearly stuck out. We, we clearly had a different day-to-day experience. And so none of us really enjoy sticking out like that. But, but if we're going to follow Jesus, we had better get used to it. Because following Jesus isn't just about worshiping him within the privacy of our home. It's about proclaiming Jesus to others. Following Jesus isn't about just merely attending Bible studies and Sunday services so that we can stay comfortable within the walls of our church. It's about getting equipped so that we can be sent out as witnesses in the world. And none of us enjoys sticking out but God leaves us in a world where we are called to stick out. He doesn't save us and then immediately take us into his heavenly kingdom. Like how many of us wish that was the case? But he makes us citizens of his kingdom. And then he leaves us here in the kingdoms of the earth. He calls us to be in the world, not of the world. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. It actually comes from Jesus's prayer for his disciples in John 17. I'm going to read that for you. I believe it's up on the screen. Jesus prayed for us. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus not only leaves his disciples in the world, he sends his disciples into the world. He sends us to be in the world, but not of the world. Following Jesus changes the way that we relate to the world around us as sent witnesses of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to stick out because we are citizens of an entirely different kingdom. So here's our big idea for today. As you relate in the world, represent the countercultural kingdom of God. As you relate in the world, your job is to represent the countercultural kingdom kingdom of God. Your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 5. Let me just give you a little bit of context. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, If you're a newer believer, uh, if you've never heard that term before, the Sermon on the Mount is something to get yourself familiar with. It's It's an important thing to know. It's one of the basics because it's all about life in the kingdom of God. Jesus, you see, ushered in this kingdom when he came to earth the first time. And he promised that he's going to bring that kingdom to fullness when he returns. 
And at the end of chapter 4, Matthew tells us that, that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom throughout all of the towns of Galilee. The, the central message of Jesus' teaching was the gospel, the good news of what the kingdom is like. And, and while he was teaching, he was healing and he was casting out demons and, and his ministry was to the poor and to the outcast and to the, to the hurting of society, which is exactly what the prophets said that his kingdom would be like. That the prophet Isaiah had said that a sign of the kingdom was that those who were afflicted would be made whole. And so Jesus was performing the signs of the kingdom that accompanied his message. So it's no surprise then that, that with, with all of this healing and all of these powerful wonders being done, that the crowds around Jesus are getting pretty big at this point. This is the, the height of his popularity in the book of Matthew. And what would a, a typical teacher do when the crowds start getting big? Just think about it. He, he would say, this is great. The more the merrier. Bring them on. Let them all come as close as possible. Let, 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 me, let me make sure that I can amplify myself so more can be seen. But not Jesus. Look down in your Bible at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So what is he doing? Why is Jesus mountain climbing all of a sudden? Because he's making it more challenging to get to him. That, that seems really strange, doesn't it? Like if you wanted people to hear, hear you, and you had big crowds to amplify to. In that day, what you would do is you would send them up the hill a little bit, and you would stay in the valley so that you created a little bit of an amphitheater for you around, and that way more people could hear you. But not Jesus. He goes up on the mountain. They have to take a step toward him. He saw the crowds, but, but notice, notice in 5.1, but his disciples came to him. His disciples came to him. This would be like if, if I were here on a Sunday morning preaching and, and all of a sudden the, the sanctuary was just like overfilled full, right? And it was full because we offered that everyone who came through the door got a free car. I think it would be full. Like if we put that all out through, through Quarryville. And so I said, oh, okay, okay. If you came, you got the free car. That's fine. That was our agreement. But if you really want to hear the word of God, uh, I'm going to take a walk a mile up Winter Hill Road. You can follow me and meet me out in the field. I'm going to be preaching there. Who would come? Who would come to that event? It would be those who were beginning to understand that the message of the kingdom was the true gift, regardless of the car. His disciples came to him. Disciples come to Jesus. They remain with him. They, they sit at his feet and listen to his teaching. That's what makes them disciples. And so, you have the right picture in your head. This isn't just 12 disciples sitting around Jesus at this point. 
Those guys aren't even named as the 12 disciples until chapter 10 of Matthew, and they're, they're called out of a larger group. And so this is all who were understanding that there is more to Jesus than what he could do for their physical circumstances. They didn't just need his healing. They needed the healer. So the content of this sermon on the mountain then that he delivered to these disciples is just like all the other sermons that he was preaching throughout the synagogues of Galilee. It was the good news of what the kingdom is like. It was all about what, would, what it would look like to live differently in this world while being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And verses 1 to 20 are, are the introduction to that sermon. So let's read together uh, all of verses 1 to 20, and then we'll break it down. I'm sorry, we're going to only go to 16 today. I don't know why I didn't notice that before. Uh, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As you relate in the world, represent the countercultural kingdom of God. Today we want to look at three ways every disciple must represent the kingdom of God. And the first is this, rejoice in the countercultural virtues of the kingdom. Rejoice in the countercultural virtues of the kingdom. Jesus' sermon starts with, with eight phrases that are called uh, beatitudes. And the beatitudes have been part of teaching or catechizing young believers in the faith for the entire history of the church. They are for sure part of the basics that that every believer needs to know. That's why I made sure that they were in this series. I I remember memorizing these in my third grade Sunday school class when I was growing up uh, for candy or something like that. Don't ask me if I remember them now by heart. But they were written in such a way that was intended to be memorized. They they are organized. They're, They're simple. And they are just so so different from anything else that we see in this world. 
And even though they're so familiar, they've been so misunderstood throughout the history of the church as well. A lot of people treat them like a list of things that you are to become, that you are to make yourself. So make yourself poor, make yourself miserable, and then God will bless you. That's been a whole line of Christian thinking throughout the history of the church. Others merely look at the words poor or righteousness or peacemakers, and and they think that this is all about social justice, and they they turn it into a social gospel, and they say that it it is different than what other people describe the gospel as, like what Paul would describe the gospel as, and that's not what Jesus means by the gospel of the kingdom, by the way. So don't don't let anybody lead you down this path that like Jesus preached one gospel and Paul preached another. No, the gospel is the gospel. It's the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done in this world and what he is still going to do. On the other hand, people sometimes over-spiritualize this list so so that it has really no connection to the context where, where Jesus is actually talking to physically poor and needy people. And so they, they rip it away from that context. And so we really need to understand the, the form of a beatitude if we're going to understand what's going on here. If we're really going to understand just how countercultural the kingdom of heaven is. So according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, I know you all like spend a lot of time reading that. The, the beatitudes were a, a common Greek form usually pronounced over people because of their wealth their children, their marriages, riches, knowledge, fame, you know, like the normal list that we would celebrate in most cultures of the world. And so the Beatitudes always followed the same form. It would start with the word blessed, which means happy in the favor of the Lord. Happy, not so much in an emotional sense, but in a reality sense. You get to be happy in the favor of the Lord. You should be happy in the favor of the Lord. Blessed are, that's a a declaration, not a desire. It's not blessed be, it's blessed are. Blessed are you. And then a description of the recipient, followed followed by a description of the reason that they are blessed or the, the benefits of this blessing. And so it might sound like this, uh, blessed are those who have much gold because they shall have much power. That, that, that sounds pretty much right in line with the way that the world thinks. Or, or how about like a more modern beatitude for you, okay? Uh, blessed are those who drive a new Toyota truck for they shall haul great loads and not break down. What do you think about that one, Dwight? <laughs> or... Blessed are the women who sip pumpkin spice lattes in sweater weather, for they shall feel all the feels. That's the typical way that we talk about blessing in our culture. But the kingdom of God rejoices over a different set of virtues. And so let's look at the the Beatitudes of the kingdom to see what virtues are celebrated by Jesus. He says, blessed are... The poor in spirit. Now, now there's a lot of debate over exactly what this means, but based on who is listening to Jesus, if we hold the context together, and what he says later in the sermon, I believe that, that Jesus is referring to those who see themselves as lowly 
before the Lord. Those who see themselves as lowly before the Lord, they they do not define themselves by their material status. They are humble before the Lord. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to disciples who who come from great physical need. These are people who have no hope for the kingdoms of the earth to be theirs. The kingdoms of the earth belong to the wealthy and the influential and the powerful. But Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven can belong to them. In fact, sometimes it's the materially poor who have a head start in understanding the, the virtues of the kingdom. Remember, Jesus is going to say later on in, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because wealthy people tend in the flesh to trust and value their riches over God. And Jesus says, man cannot serve two masters. The wealthy are often unwilling to follow Jesus at all costs. That's what's going on in the whole context of when he makes that statement. In fact, Jesus says that with man, it is impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom. But with God, all things are possible. And so that's why we must be careful to not leave off that little in spirit phrase that's there. See, the materially poor can be poor without being poor in spirit. They, they can still have their heart set on all the riches and they can still have their hope that, that someday, if they get riches, all of their problems will be solved. That's not poor in spirit. At the same time, the materially wealthy can be poor in spirit without becoming materially poor. They can view all that they have as not belonging to them, but belonging to God and to be used for his kingdom. They can see that their wealth doesn't earn them a significance or a place within the kingdom, but that it is useful for the kingdom, and therefore they can be rich in generosity toward God. And I believe that Jesus, in this sense, is a good example of poor in spirit. Philippians 2, 6-7 says of Jesus, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. He had all the riches of heaven at his disposal, but he lived as a servant, and he entered into willing suffering on our behalf. And Paul starts out that sentence in Philippians by saying that we, the disciples of Jesus, are to have the same mind of Christ among us. And so instead of finding their life in riches, disciples find their, their life, their vitality, their spirit in knowing the king. Regardless of your economic status, to the, to the poor in spirit, Jesus says, yours, yours is the kingdom of heaven. D.A. Carson says it this way, the kingdom of heaven is given to the poor, those who are so poor that they know they can offer nothing and do not try. And often that poverty and spirit leads to this next virtue. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Godly mourning refers to uh, lamenting sin and 
sin's effects. Are any of you mourning this week? As you read about Afghanistan, what's going on there? As you read about people in our community who are really sick with COVID, the family that I know of, all of them are in the hospital. I know a lot of you know them too. We mourn that. We lament that. And equally, they, 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 they lament the, the sin that causes that, the fallenness of this world. And they lament all these things because th- these things are not part of God's original design for humanity. Jesus, again, is a great guide in our mourning. He wept over the depravity of Jerusalem. He wept over the death of his friend Lazarus, Lazarus and the, the, the pain that it caused Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. Jesus understands our mourning. And true disciples mourn for sin and its effects in their lives and in the lives of the people around us, around them. When they look at suffering, they don't say, well, guess they got what they deserved. When they look, look at sin, they don't say, oh, every, everyone makes mistakes. It's only human. It's not a big deal. No, they mourn over these things. But, but these mourners are also blessed. And here's why. Because, because God brings comfort to those who mourn over sin and its effects. You see, the world mourns as those who have no hope. They, they don't understand the connection between sin and suffering and God's plan of redemption. And when it comes to sin, they have worldly grief. They don't really understand their sin is an offense against a holy God. But when we see our sin for what it truly is, when we come face to face with that reality, God's not like, yeah, you should be mourning. And God's saying, I'm going to draw near with forgiveness, and mercy, and grace. And when we see the effects of sin and, and we truly understand the fallenness of this world, God rushes his presence toward us and brings assurance of the kingdom that is yet to come. The, the Lord's comfort comes now through the Holy Spirit, who in the Bible is called the Comforter. And ultimately, it comes in the future kingdom when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and bring final resolution to all mourning. Can't you wait? We can be happy in the Lord's favor because we take comfort in the future kingdom that is coming. And that assurance is also given to the meek. Blessed are the meek. Meekness is not, as the world would suggest, weakness. Meekness is is gentleness. It's strength under control. It's the opposite of self-importance. You think, what is meekness? It's it's the opposite of self-important. The the kingdoms of the earth are all about putting on a good face and making sure you look important and showing how strong you are and getting to the front of the line. But Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Later, Jesus would say in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart 
and you will find rest for your souls. That word for gentle that Jesus used of himself is the same Greek word as the word for meek. Disciples reflect God's son in his meekness. And as adopted children of the living God, they they take part in his inheritance. It says, the meek shall inherit the earth. The book of Revelation, uh, I quoted it in prayer, declares that the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is his inheritance. You look back at Psalm 2. And his disciples shall reign with him on the earth. This is why they are blessed. The disciples don't just mourn over sin and carry themselves in meekness as if they can do nothing about it. Disciples hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The world does what is right in their own eyes. But disciples desperately long to see the righteousness of God in their own lives and in the lives of the people around them. Righteousness is is acting in right relationship to God and others. And disciples see the perfect righteousness of Jesus. They receive his righteousness that is credited to them through faith, and then they long to see that work out practically in their activity and relationships. Last week we said that that Jesus was vindicated as righteousness and there as righteous and therefore we have a righteousness to grow into. And not only for ourselves but but disciples long for others to be made right with God and to embrace his righteousness. And so when we pray, Lord, I long to see your righteousness. Grow me in righteousness. Help me demonstrate your righteousness to others, that that's a prayer that God loves to answer yes to. They shall be satisfied. God satisfies our longing for righteousness because he is righteous and because he is merciful. Blessed are the merciful. The world says, you get what you deserve. An eye for an eye. But mercy is the currency of God's kingdom. Mercy is the currency of God's kingdom. Jesus is often described as having compassion or mercy on people. He stepped into their sin and suffering experience and provided the cure. The merciful are those who extend compassion towards sufferers and forgiveness towards sinners. The merciful walk with people instead of judging over people. They they are blessed because they have received mercy from the higher judge. So Jesus told a parable about a man who had massive, massive debt. And the judge forgave the debt. He wrote it off, but as soon as the man left the judge's presence, he went and he found one of his own servants who had a little bit of debt. And he demanded that the man pay him back. And when the man couldn't pay him back, he beat him. And he left him. And so the judge called this man back in. And he said, you wicked, 
wicked man. And he had him beat and thrown into prison forever. And Jesus is showing that those who have been shown great mercy demonstrate their faith in that mercy by extending mercy to others. And those who do not extend mercy reveal that they are not a part of the kingdom. That there has been no real mercy granted to them. But because disciples have been shown mercy from God, they are also then pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. The world is stained through and through with sin. Even their best deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. None of us are, are pure before the holy perfection of God without Jesus Christ. But the Psalms say in Psalm 24, 3 and 4, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So who fits that description? Tell me, who fits that description? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And Jesus went into the most holy place, the, the place where the presence of God dwells, and he made the offering of sin with his own blood, for sin with his own blood, so that we could enter into God's presence. And by faith in him, disciples are made pure in heart. They've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And, and as a result, they genuinely pursue God. The, the pure in heart have a singular devotion to God through the cleansing of Jesus Christ. And so they are the ones who draw near. They are the ones who go up on the mountain when Jesus moves. And they are blessed because they shall see him. There's no greater blessing in all the world. Believe this, disciple. There's no greater blessing in all the world than to see God. We see him now through eyes of faith. But one day we shall see him face to face. Face to face. And that's only possible because Jesus came to make peace between us and God, which leads to this next blessing. Blessed are the peacemakers. The world wants peace. But few are willing to make peace. And even if they try, they are clueless as to how. Kids, do you ever try to make peace with your sibling and it just like feels impossible? You ever feel that? You got to look to Jesus because he is the ultimate peacemaker. Ephesians 2 says, he himself is our peace. And he calls his disciples to be peacemakers, to be ministers of reconciliation, Paul says. Not just peacekeepers, we are to be peacemakers. Peacemakers bring warring parties together through the good news of Jesus. We make peace when we declare that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justifi justified by his grace as a gift. And the reason peacemakers are blessed is because, is because they are called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In other words, they're just following in their father's footsteps. They're just continuing on in the, the family 
business of peacemaking. But being peacemakers doesn't mean that, that people won't oppose us, which why is why Jesus has to give this last beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Living out kingdom virtues while they are so good and everybody would want, should want them is not always popular. In fact, it's, it's downright strange in our world. And so people will see meekness as vulnerability and take it as an opportunity to trample on you. People will see your righteousness and your desire for purity as a holier-than-thou attitude and try to trip you up in it. People will see your purity of heart and declare you as a threat to their value system that must be neutralized. But when your life is expressing the righteousness of the kingdom and you're opposed for it, you're just showing how countercultural the kingdom of God really is. It's proof that you get the kingdom. Because our, our king went through the same treatment. This is the only beatitude that, that Jesus elaborates on. Verses 11 and 12. And, and notice what he does. He changes the wording from persecuted for righteousness sake to revile and persecute and all other kinds of evil. Just let's make sure we know that it, all, it fits all of it. On my accounts. When we are persecuted, we are identifying personally with the Savior who suffered and died for us. We're identifying with every prophet who ever spoke for God and stood against the tides of evil of the world with a heart that was set on the kingdom of heaven. And the reward for that is great. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You are counted among the faithful and receive the reward of faith. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are disciples of Jesus. Jesus is totally worth it. But I want you to understand, and this is what I want to drive home today. The Beatitudes are totally countercultural in any culture. If you're like, yeah, but I don't really want these things. I, like, it's, it's warring against my flesh. Yeah, that's the point. No, no one says, like, look at that guy who's mourning. Isn't he happy in the favor of the Lord? He is so blessed. Nobody says that. I don't care whether you live in the jungles of South America or you live in Buckingham Palace. The virtues of the kingdom are countercultural in any culture. And so if you want to fit in with the cultures of this world, the kingdom of heaven is not for you. Kids, if you want to be the most popular kid in school because of how much you fit in, the kingdom of heaven is not for you. The virtues of the kingdom are celebrated only, only when we truly treasure our king and understand the good news of his kingdom. They're celebrated because they reflect the character of our king. 
And so understand what the Beatitudes are doing. They're, they're celebrating certain virtues and values. They're saying, don't you see how blessed disciples are? See it. Let's call it out. And then Jesus said in verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. That's the point of Beatitudes, to get our eyes off the values of this earth and onto the virtues of heaven. But, But many of us, even disciples, have a hard time seeing how blessed we are. We see our poverty of soul, but we don't understand how being poor in spirit is the prerequisite of experiencing the kingdom. We see our mourning, but we forget that we can't receive comfort unless we first understand the source of pain, which is sin. We see the persecution and opposition, but we forget that this is the way that it was always expected to be because we represent a countercultural kingdom. And so what, what we do is we avoid these virtues instead of celebrating them. We avoid mourning at all costs. We avoid looking meek. We seek therapy instead of Jesus for our poverty of soul. We seek alcohol instead of the Spirit as our source of comfort. We seek licentious living under the guise of free grace instead of truly hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of our Savior. And so let me ask you, do you celebrate or do you avoid these kingdom virtues? Do that heart inventory right now. Do you celebrate or do you avoid these kingdom virtues? And if you find that you avoid them, start the celebration first by looking to Jesus. Maybe you're like me and you can see a lot of ways that you fall short of these virtues, like even this past week. Ways that you weren't meek or didn't hunger for righteousness like you ought. That's you go to Jesus. He is the perfect embodiment of these virtues. Start celebrating him because these virtues of the kingdom are only available to us through him. He must be our example, but he also must be our substitute, paying for all of the ways that we miss the mark. And then and only then can he be the power so that we can actually live in light of these virtues. So celebrate him because we become what we celebrate. We become what we celebrate. It's when we celebrate him as the suffering savior that we can rejoice and be glad when we lack what the world values because we still have all the king, that the kingdom of heaven has to offer. And so lift up your voice and, and shout for joy about it. That as a disciple, you have been given the full rights of the kingdom of God. You have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have been given a, a glorious inheritance that is waiting for you in heaven. You, you have been granted access to see God. And if another disciple is having a hard time seeing it, Help them see it. Blessed are you when? Pull out a beatitude. Remind them of what is true of them. Point their eyes onto Jesus and onto his eternal kingdom. Because as much as we are not of this world, we still must live in this world. And listen, that's hard. 
That's hard. But it's according to God's good purpose. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. As we celebrate the countercultural virtues of the kingdom, we will retain the countercultural goodness of the kingdom. Okay, I know that that first point was really, really long, but we needed to lay a lot of groundwork there so that we could understand what it looks like to actually be countercultural. And so we retain the countercultural goodness of the kingdom in the world in which we live. So there's a lot of ink spilled in the commentaries about what function of salt Jesus is talking about here. It's amazing what people can argue about. Is it the flavoring function? Is it the fertilizer function? Is it the preservative function? Guess what? Nobody actually has a a definite answer on that, right? But no matter what function of salt Jesus is specifically talking about, he's clearly talking about the positive effect of believers in the world that could easily be diluted. Salt is good. It's good. It's it's got goodness to it. It's used to enhance the thing to which it is added. And just like salt, disciples of Jesus enhance the world in which we live. Just like salt, disciples of Jesus become the seasoning of God's goodness in a world that is dying. The world needs more people who, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, see sin and mourn sin and humbly come before the Lord in confidence to hunger and thirst for righteousness where they live. The world needs disciples who walk by the Spirit to bear the fruit of the Spirit of of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Like I don't don't care who you are. That kind of Spirit-filled person is a joy to be around, right? The world needs believing families who are ordered according to God's Word and raise their kids in that order. The world needs workers and employers who work hard unto the Lord, who are going to contribute excellence and goodness to their workplace. The world needs churches who encourage one another to bear witness about the gospel, who will be a blessing to their communities in word and deed. As salt, disciples of Jesus enhance the world in which we live we retain the countercultural goodness of the kingdom in a world that is dying. And so this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about salt. But the problem is that too often disciples of Jesus spend all of their efforts trying to fit in with the world, trying to get the world to like them instead of being salt in the world. Jesus says, if salt has lost its saltiness, it's not good for anything. Now, technically... All the like, chemists are like, technically it's not possible for salt to lose its saltiness. It's the most stable compound in the world. It, it, right, it can't. But Jesus is talking about the, the salt that was mined in with other minerals, and, and so it would be very impure. There was actually a way to like, get one over on someone when you were selling them a load of salt was to just sell them a bunch of minerals that looked like salt. 
It looks like salt, but it lacks the effectiveness of salt. It lacks the goodness of salt. Really, it's just adding more world to the world. And so what are some ways that we do this? Let's just think about the way that we like, think about evangelism sometimes. Sometimes the idea of evangelism is like spend years and years and years and years becoming someone's friend, not telling them that you're a Christian, and then when the time is just right, uh, in, invite them to some church event that's designed to be cool, a, a very cool Christian version of this world. And, and then here's how that church is sometimes set up. The world loves self-help, so let's do a self-help sermon series. The world loves coffee. Let's put us on our sign that we offer free coffee. That'll bring them in. Listen, the world doesn't need more coffee. They don't need more self-help. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. And if we focus on being disciples who accurately represent the kingdom of God, we will be salt in the earth. We merely need to focus our hearts on the kingdom while remaining in the world. We can't retreat. We must remain and retain a countercultural goodness in the world. So let me ask you this. Do you have a good impact on the people around you? Just by the way that you live your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ, in all of the different spheres that we've been talking about in the basics of following Jesus, do you have a good impact? Do you stand out as different? Could people say, there's something different about that guy. And you know what? I've heard him talk about Jesus. Maybe that Jesus guy is the reason he's different or she's different. Do unbelievers want to be different because of the, what they see in you? Not everyone. Like some people are going to be repulsed by it, right? Some people are going to persecute you. But for those who are being saved, you will retain the goodness of God and point them to his glory. And that's the thrust of what Jesus teaches next. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father as in heaven. The, the third way we must represent the countercultural kingdom of God is to radiate the countercultural glory of the kingdom. Radiate the countercultural glory of the kingdom. When disciples of Jesus live out the virtues of the kingdom, they shine the glory of God through them. Notice they, they see your good works and they glorify who? Your Father in heaven. Now, now, most unbelievers I know aren't going to make that connection on their own, right? Like, like giving glory to God because I did something good. And so what's implied here? That we actually make that connection for them. <laughs> that, that we tell them about the king and the kingdom that we represent along with our good works. And so being the light of the world is revealing God's glory through us, his great plan of redemption. To be the light of the world, we shine into the kingdom of darkness and call others into the marvelous light, the, the kingdom of his beloved son. And we do this by showing what the kingdom of our God is like through our good works. 
But then we have to point others to the one who produced those good works in us. Now, a lot of Christians think, but, but doesn't that sound prideful? Like, I mean, later in Jesus' sermon, he says, we're not supposed to like let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. And, and so aren't we supposed to do good works in secret? Well, first of all, the verse about your right and left hand are about giving in the temple to look good in front of religious people, not about doing good works in front of unbelievers. Second of all, we're not trying to attract attention to ourselves. We are shining light onto God's glory. And if we're doing it right, that's what's going to happen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, flights into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Being countercultural does not mean that we hide or retreat from the darkness. It means that we illuminate the darkness. And so here's what this looks like on a practical level. It means that you highlight the difference that God makes in your life. Not in a way that makes you look good, but in a way that shows your weakness and God's power in you. You gently respond to a stressful event. And when others ask why, you make sure to say, oh man, I, I was stressed out. I was feeling that way. But then the Lord just came in and calmed my heart. I cried out to him and he answered me. You become a peacemaker in your workplace by refusing to, to talk bad about, what, uh, about that person that everyone else hates. And, and when they ask you why you won't join in the fun, you tell them it's because God showed you mercy when you hated him. You were an impossible person to deal with. And so, so make this personal. What good works, what virtues of the kingdom will unbelievers get to see in your life this week? And how will they know who to get, give credit to? It might mean that you have to intentionally position yourself around some unbelievers because you've been in the Christian bubble so long that you aren't in the world anymore. You're just not of it. It might mean that you need to start embracing the kingdom virtues by looking at Christ and saying, yes, I want to be like him and I can only do that in his power. Jesus, forgive me, lead me. Will you radiate the countercultural glory of the kingdom this week? As you relate in the world this week, represent the countercultural kingdom of God. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.